Ted Bork is here with News Talk KZRG. Welcome to this week's episode of Plot Summary. This is where I take everything that Steve, Peter, and myself discussed this week on the Morning News Watch, and I summarize it into a nice little 45-minute clip for you. That way, hey, look, we talk a lot on the Morning News Watch. If you can't tune in for all of it, it's all good. You can still get all the news right here. I'm going to start off this week about the presidential race for 2024 and some polling numbers that had come out. So last week, Nikki Haley had announced that she is running for the Republican nomination for president of the United States. She's really only the second major individual that has announced that she's running, second only to Trump, of course. And some preliminary polling information came out about Nikki. Six percent of Republicans support Nikki Haley. Now, this doesn't sound like a lot, but this is actually double her previous numbers. In initial polling, only 3% of Republicans supported Nikki Haley. So, in just a short couple of weeks here, she's doubled her support. Now, obviously, from 3% to 6% doesn't sound like a lot, but it is interesting nonetheless. Now, some people have been arguing that the reason for this bump in support is because of how much hate Nikki Haley has been getting on the left. This last week, we saw a mountain of hate coming from the left about Nikki Haley, most notably about her gender and about the fact that she's a Republican. So the the left hasn't been a big fan of her so far. Now, where does that put Nikki Haley in the polling sphere in relation to other big fish? Well, Trump is dominating with 50% support from Republicans, followed by Ron DeSantis, who is the Florida governor and who, by the way, has not announced he's running yet. DeSantis has about 30% of Republican support. And Nikki Haley is tied with former Vice President Mike Pence at 6%. So it may seem like the presidential race is going really slow, but things are happening. Smaller things, and these polls really show that. Speaking of which, another poll came out. Among United States adults, Biden earned 46% favorability. Now, that is the highest since March of 2022. He also scored a 49% approval rating among registered voters. Now, this is everyone as a whole across the country, which is also the highest since that awful withdrawal in Afghanistan back in August of 2021, which absolutely cratered his support. That Afghanistan withdrawal destroyed his support. His numbers reached an all-time low. And now he has 49% approval rating, which is the highest they've been since then, basically. Now, on the flip side of that, Donald Trump, he sank to his lowest approval rating among Republican voters with 68% to 25%. He was at 68% for approval. He's now at 25% for approval. I know that sounds confusing with the previous poll, but remember, the other polls said that 50% of Republicans would support Trump. Now, even though they're supporting him, they're not all that satisfied with him. They think he could do better. They think he could perform better. So he's got a lot of voter support, but those voters that will vote for him and will support him think he could be better. Now, being at 25% approval among Republicans, this is actually Trump's lowest score among Republican voters in seven years. Seven years. That's something to keep an eye out on for the Republicans. And I want to give you a little list here of who has officially announced for running for president for 2024, on the Republican side at least. We have Donald Trump, of course. We have Steve Lafey. He's running for the Republicans as well. He's the former mayor of Cranston, Rhode Island. He announced earlier this month. And when he announced, he had made a a large press statement, which read, Our country has done the equivalent of using Band-Aids in place of major surgery. Somehow we have gotten by. 
For the first time in a generation, we must directly confront our problems. That's sort of his little pitch to the nation of why he's running. Then, of course, we have Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley served as U.S. ambassador for the U.N. under the Trump administration and um, is the first high-profile Republican to challenge Trump, as we know. We also have Vivek Ramaswamy. He's running for president underneath the Republican ticket. Vivek is an entrepreneur, and he announced just this last week he had said to put America first, we need to rediscover what America is. And the synopsis of his campaign is trying to find a way to bring the country together and re-pen what we identify ourselves as. Create a new American dream. One that's not all about money, but about the unapologetic pursuit of excellence. That's sort of his tagline there. And those are everyone that is officially announced, officially announced that they will be running for president in 2024 under the Republican ticket. Now, a couple of other potential presidential candidates that their names have been buzzing left and right. We have obviously Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He hasn't even announced yet, and he's already garnered 30 percent of Republican support. We also have Tim Scott. We had, uh, you know, Ted Cruz's name has been thrown out there. There's there's been a lot of names thrown out there, but so far. Only four people have officially announced they're running for president in 2024 under the Republican Party. Democrats, eh, they're a lot more slow going this round. Moving on from there, uh, there was a lot of developments this week internationally, most notably about the Ukraine-Russian war. Now, China made some waves this week in relation to that very war. Supposedly, President Xi Jinping is seeking to push for multilateral peace talks to end the war in Ukraine. This ruffled up quite a few feathers in the United States, uh, most notably among Republicans, because they felt that that should not be China's role to do. They felt that should be the United States' role to do, is to go in and be able to garner these peace talks. Now, some people this week were saying, well, it's not really the U.S.'s role. Why are we playing world police? Whereas others were counter-arguing with, it's not about playing world police. It's about the fact that if China were to set the terms of these peace talks, then they can guide the setting of those terms towards a preferable route for China. They could they could guide the terms in a way that puts China in a more preferable position than, say, someone like the U.S. And people argued, shouldn't the U.S. be doing that? Now, Beijing said they would like to play a bigger role in the peacemaking process as a whole. And they argued, China argued, that it was because Russia is starting to move further and further into China's sphere of influence. Now, what that comment was about, supposedly more or less, was that because of this war in Russia and because all of the West essentially is kind of pushing against it, it is actually now negatively affecting China's business dealings, their economy, their oil production, all, all of the above. So China is now thinking, let's go ahead and maybe stamp this out Possibly. Now, this is where it might get a little bit complicated. Some were saying this week that China isn't there to speak peace at all. China is actually there to aid Russia formally. Some were arguing that China calling for peace talks and all this could be nothing more than a Trojan horse. You know, they say, oh, we're here to broker peace. And in reality, they're actually meeting with Russia uh, to uh, negotiate the trading of weapons and uh, resources. Now, where that sort of theory stemmed from was this week, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that there are signs that China may soon begin providing lethal aid to Russia in support of its invasion. Lethal aid. Up until this point, China has absolutely been providing aid to Russia in the form of purchasing their oil to give them money. 
in the form of intelligence and in the form of certain equipment, certain technological equipment. But they have yet to send any guns, bombs, weapons, or at least they have yet to uh, been caught sending them any guns, bombs, or weapons. And on the flip side of all that, as China and Russia have been becoming real cozy, uh, Russia has been losing Serbia. <laughs> uh, Serbia has been a Balkan ally of Russia's pretty much since the end of the Cold War. Serbia is a, a country that is, you know, in, in bed with Russia. They dig each other. They help each other out. But as this war has been going on, and, and this is a long time coming, in these past several decades now, Serbia has been kind of pulling away from Russia. And this week, there was a big middle finger to Russia from Serbia. Serbia is inching closer and closer to Europe, specifically because they are becoming good buddies with the French. <laughs> I mean, this is like a weird, you know, international rom-com here. Serbia is dating the French now. What happened to their relationship with Russia? I guess out with the old and with the new, you know, French love interest. Serbia's military is made up almost entirely of secondhand, you know, hand-me-down Soviet-era equipment from Russia. And that's one of the reasons why Serbia dug Russia, is Russia said, hey, you can have all this stuff, just, you know, be friends with us. And Serbians went, yeah, it sounds like a pretty sweet deal. Well, it's 2023 here, people. You know, Soviet-era weaponry isn't going to cut it anymore. We have hypersonic nukes, for crying out loud. Well, Russia stopped giving, you know, the goods to Serbia, and the French said, hey... Do you want some F-16s? Hey, do you want some, you know, modern military technology? We'll give it to you for a good deal, and then maybe we can all go out and get a cup of coffee together. And this has been going on for, you know, a couple of decades now, at least 20, 30 years now. And so Serbia has been cozying up with France now in an attempt to modernize their military. It's been working great for Serbia. The French enjoy the relationship. And now all of a sudden, Russia is calling on Serbia to help them with this war, and Serbia went... Uh, no, we can give you back your old Soviet era weapons from the 80s from 50 years ago. Do you want I mean, would that help you? Because that's what you gave us and it has been helping us lately. So essentially, Russia called on Serbia for aid and Serbia snubbed them. <laughs> they just stopped taking their calls. They're like, yeah, we're not going to help you, buddy. We have new BFFs, France. So that was a very interesting development. Russia gained one friend with China. And lost an old, old buddy, Serbia. Meanwhile, the European Union may be gaining Serbia. Much like how NATO is gaining the Nordic states. Much like how NATO may be gaining some of these satellite nations. Like Ukraine. Like Serbia. What might have happened with Belarus, though that is now Russia's for sure. But, yeah, a lot of new friendships are being made and a lot of old friendships are being torn down because of this war in Ukraine. It's very interesting developments. Speaking of uh, Belarus and Russia, another interesting development this week, uh, the Putin kill list may have gained yet another victim. A pro-West foreign minister of Belarus died by suicide just days after returning from a meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin's officials in Armenia. Long-serving foreign minister Vladimir Mayek, who is 64, claimed to have suffered a suspicious heart attack that was ruled a suicide when he suddenly died. Now, this was, again, a very short time after meeting with Putin's individuals in Armenia. This was a a Belarusian official who was pro-West, who wanted this war to end. Met with Putin's guys, and next thing you know, heart attack, that's a suicide. I don't know how many, (laughs) I don't know how many people have committed suicide by heart attack, but that seems, um, 
Not normal, frankly. So Putin kill list, who knows? But yeah, that's um that was pretty big in the news this week. So those were the pretty much the big developments internationally this week, but domestically here there was a lot of political a lot of political happenings going on, most notably with the New Georgia Project. The New Georgia Project is a nonprofit organization that was started by Stacey Abrams. Now Stacey Abrams ran for governor in Georgia twice. Stacey Abrams lost twice. Stacey Abrams uh, has said a lot of pretty nutty things uh, this last year or so. Some famous examples is she claimed that when uh, a pregnant woman goes and gets an ultrasound, the heartbeat noise is not real. It's actually fake, and there's no real way to, to tell the child's heartbeat. And, and you know, she posited this huge cabal of doctors and nurses that were all in on this big conspiracy theory to make a fake noise when, when women get ultrasounds. So she she had claimed that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, she's a little bit of a nutty professor, to be sure. Well, that very Stacey Abrams, the nonprofit that she started, the New Georgia Project, according to tax filings from 2021, they show that certain sums of money were claimed to have gone to a secondary charity called the Black Male Initiative. It's quite a name. But that money never got there, according to the Black Male Initiative. So the New Georgia Project told the IRS, we donated $533,000 to the Black Male Initiative. We gave it to them. And then when the IRS asked the Black Male Initiative to show that money so they could keep track of it, uh, the Black Male Initiative said, no, they didn't. We didn't get any money from the, the New Georgia Project. What are, they, what are they talking about? little suspicious. It's also worth noting that the New Georgia Project filed its 990 financial disclosure two months after the form was due. That was another big thing we had talked on the Morning News Watch about a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, that they just, the New Georgia Project just decided, eh, we're not going to file our taxes on time. We're just going to, we're just not going to. And their excuse at the time was that their uh, their staff uh, that were very hardworking were on a well-deserved vacation. So, sorry, government, we, um, we don't have to file our taxes. Our staff's on a well-deserved vacation. Well, not only did they file the taxes late, they also apparently committed fraud on them because uh, they had said they gave $533,000 to the Blackmail Initiative, who in turn said they absolutely did not. Now, the other thing that this financial disclosure showed was that it paid $0 in payroll taxes that year. Alan Dye is a nonprofit attorney. He's an attorney that specializes in nonprofits. And when he was asked, is it possible for a nonprofit like the New Georgia Project to pay $0 in payroll taxes, he said, absolutely not. Absolutely, that is not possible. And by not possible, it mean, he meant it's illegal. He said, quote, I have no idea how a charity can have 173 paid employees and pay zero payroll taxes. It's just not possible. I can't answer that question. There should be no excuse for that, end quote. And by not possible, what I mean is it's not legal. If you have 173 paid employees, even if it's a nonprofit, you have to pay payroll taxes. You can't just not pay them. There is no law. There is no skirt around. There is no workaround for a nonprofit to not pay payroll taxes. This is a nonprofit attorney whose job it is to know intimately nonprofit law in this country. And he said there is no precedent. There is no law. There is no other nonprofit in the country that pays zero payroll taxes legally. So if they're not paying payroll taxes, that means it's illegal and fraud. So, New Georgia Project, what are you up to, man? 
So that's the new Georgia project for you in a nutshell and what they have cooking over there. Shifting gears slightly, in gender news this week, it came out in uh, found email correspondence from 2018. Now, these email correspondence were between a pediatrician and Rachel Levine. Rachel Levine is the assistant secretary for health for the United States of America. And it's also important to note that Ms. Levine is a transgendered woman. Ms. Levine was born a man and transitioned into a female, and she now identifies as female. Good for her, I guess. Now, back in 2018, Ms. Levine was operating as Pennsylvania's acting secretary of health. This is the secretary of health, okay? And in email correspondence, she was talking with a pediatrician about the infinite amount of money that clinics and big pharma would be making off of kids that would like to transition genders because they would be repeat customers for life. Once you do the transition, it is a lifetime guarantee of repeat customers coming back for hormone therapy, chemical whatever, this, this, and that. And this pediatrician noted that even if children were limited to which gender transition surgeries they could get as minors, those children would eventually turn 18, making the social workers' efforts more financially rewarding. This entire conversation was exclusively about the financial gain that is to be gained for transition surgeries. Now, this is nothing new. The fact that this is that transition surgeries are an absolute cash cow. Uh, this is something that had been discussed for years. Um, it came out. It came out last year that through private conversations that were leaked between uh, physicians, they were painfully aware of how much money they could make performing gender transition surgeries and offering gender transition hormone therapy, so on and so forth. It came out about a year ago that these doctors were t- discussing how much money they're making. And, of course, that was met with a ton of public scrutiny. But what was so chilling about this week was that this was with government officials. This was pe- with Pennsylvania's acting secretary of health. And Rachel Levine was promoting how much money these physicians could make. If only we could push to change the laws on when we can allow uh, gender transition surgeries. Right. And now Rachel Levine is currently serving as the secretary of health for the Biden administration for the entire country. So there was a lot of concern when this came out. It's fair to say that, you know, I doubt Rachel Levine has changed her mind on the financial incentives that could be gained from pushing gender therapy and gender transition for children. She probably hasn't changed her mind on it, which begs the question, is she bringing that philosophy on a national level? I think that's a reasonable question to ask. And that is the very question that was being asked this week when these documents were released. These email correspondence were from 2018, but it's fair to say that she probably hasn't changed her mind a whole heck of a lot on it since then. At least there's no evidence to suggest she has, but there is evidence to suggest that she's interested in the financial aspect of gender transitions for minors. Pretty interesting. Speaking of children, this week something came out this week was about starting pay for teachers in the state of Missouri, which is becoming a very popular conversation to have across this country right now. Now, Missouri ranks last in the nation for starting teacher salaries. Last. Missouri, by state, under state statute, the minimum pay for a Missouri teacher is $25,000 a year. But the average annual starting salary for teachers in Missouri is $33,000. 
A bill was filed in the U.S. House of Representatives that would raise the minimum teacher starting pay to $60,000 a year across the country, including Missouri. This is a pretty big jump. Going from a minimum starting pay of $25,000 to a minimum starting pay of $60,000, that's more than double. Now, perhaps in not very surprising to you, Missouri teachers are pretty into it. They're, they're pretty much digging that. But there was some argument this week about how that could actually be pulled off. The Kansas City Federation of Teachers president, Jason Roberts, said, quote, The federal government would have to invest hundreds of billions of dollars in local education in order to make it work. End quote. He's not wrong. Paying teachers more is something that I think everyone can agree with. And in theory, paying teachers more is a wonderful thing. Unfortunately, theory only gets you so far. And the Kansas City Federation of Teachers president, John Roberts himself, said that it's a great idea. But so far, there's been no plan on how to actually do it aside from we should pay them more. A call to arms to pay teachers more is a very noble call to make. But without a solid plan on how to actually implement it, it's nothing more than just a public outcry. And that's what Jason Roberts was saying. As he said, it's great that the federal government is thinking about these things. That's wonderful. But the rest of society is already thinking about this thing. And most of society has already reached the conclusion that we should pay teachers more. What we need the federal government to do is to actually come up with a plan on how to do that, on how to implement it. Anyone can come up with the theory we should pay teachers more. Yeah, we should also pay firefighters more. That's a great theory. That's a great idea that I just came up with. What we need the government to do is figure out how to do it. That's the hard part. Not the who we should give money to. Teachers, librarians, firefighters, police. That's not the hard part. The hard part is figuring out how do we do it. And that's where the government was missing this week. And in almost really not all that surprising way. Speaking of the government, um, another sort of goofy thing that happened this week with the government and with government officials... President Joe Biden's transportation secretary, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg was walking down the street with his loving husband, taking some personal time, as he called it, when a news reporter started asking him about the train derailment in Ohio. If you haven't been following along with that, a very quick synopsis of the Ohio train derailment is there was a a town called Palestine, Ohio, that had train tracks running through it. There was a train that was carrying toxic chemicals going through the area. And that train very dramatically derailed. And the cargo that the train was carrying, you know, crates and crates of chemicals, all of that got leaked into the environment. Um, it is now soaked up into the ground. It's soaked up into the water. It's, it's up in the air. And the residents are very concerned. They're concerned for their children's health. They're concerned that their tap water might just have harmful chemicals in it. And they were calling for help from the federal government saying, hey, look, can somebody come please and clean this mess up? Because this is really messing us up, man. We're going to get cancer. Someone please come clean this mess up, like the federal government. And the federal government, Joe Biden's government, said, yes, we will come and help. And they aided by um, saying that we need to tax rail companies more and we need to set new regulations to make sure train tracks are safer. And those are all great things. Maybe we should make sure that the train tracks and the brakes on trains are up to date and safe. But the residents of Ohio were saying, we don't really care about policy right now. We care that my dog, you know, now has a fifth leg <laughs> because of this chemical spill. I'm, I'm seeing squirrels run around with three eyeballs. Can, can you come clean up the mess and then we'll talk about policy later? Um, so, yeah, they were not all that happy. Uh, the, the Biden administration refused to make a trip down there. And, and that's not a political thing. That's like they, they said, no, we won't go. 
And uh, the transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg, also refused to go down there. Eventually, enough public pressure uh, mounted that required that he do show up. And so finally he did. And he made a pretty uh, weak sauce speech in the opinion of the local residents. But anyway, Buttigieg was walking down the street with his loving husband, taking some personal time, when a reporter asked him about that train derailment in Ohio, asking him why it took so long to respond, asking him if you know he's going to actually help clean up the mess or if he's just going to sit down and publish another policy paper. And uh, when the reporter was asking these questions, he said that he'll refer her to his press office. And, you know, she was asking these legitimate journalistic questions, and he said, well, talk to my press secretary, talk to the press office. And she said, no, I want to hear it from you. To wit, Pete Buttigieg responded by asking if he could take a picture of this woman. (laughs) And uh, the woman said, yeah, yeah, you can take my picture, which I don't know why on earth she said yes. Well, (laughs) But uh, there's a lot of concern that uh, we discussed on the Morning News Watch this week at News Talk KZRG. What on earth is he doing with this picture? Some people on Twitter and on the internet were saying, ah, maybe it's part of some sort of blacklist. Like, you know, he, he, he gets these pictures and puts them up on his corkboard and says, do not let in, you know, cancel. Do not allow her to investigate. And so, yeah, others were wondering if this was some sort of joke. Like, if he thought it was kind of funny to take a picture of her. Sort of like a Dylan and Cole Sprouse selfie off sort of situation. I don't know. Whole thing was kind of bizarre. And people were wondering what the 411 on that is. Well, on Thursday, Pete Buttigieg was asked, why did you take a picture of this woman? And he pretty much refused to say why he took a photo of the Daily Caller News Foundation investigative reporter. I mean, this wasn't just some rando sticking a camera in his face. She worked with the Daily Caller doing legitimate news and legitimate investigation. (laughs) So everyone's like, dude, what are you doing? Pete! What are you doing, man? What is this? The whole thing was just so bizarre. So, but anyway, I just thought that I would explain that because if you see any hashtag uh, Buttigieg selfies or Buttigieg photos trending on Twitter, if you see people talking about that on Facebook, now you have a nice little synopsis as to why. He decided to take a picture of some random reporter that was asking him legitimate questions and uh, just sort of called it a day. He took the photos and went, yeah, I'm out. I'm going to keep these to do with them what I will, (laughs) what I choose to. And I'm not going to answer as to why. So, yeah, if you see that hashtag trending, there's the reason. And uh, last but not least, a couple of other smaller things that went on this week that we discussed on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG. James O'Keefe, who is the founder and CEO of Project Veritas, he was ousted this week. Project Veritas was that famous, um, started sort of that investigative reporter style where you know, people pretend to go on dates with people and then secretly record the conversation. And, uh, you know, they'll send reporters out to go on a date with, I don't know, somebody that works at Twitter, someone that knows what's going on. And then they go, oh, you work at Twitter? That's so impressive. Oh, my God. Um, so are, are you really silencing Republicans? Or <laughs> And then you sort of like ask them uh, these uh, legitimate, legitimate newsworthy questions and then, you know, report on it. Uh, so, yeah, that guy, James O'Keefe. He was ousted. He was put on paid leave for management issues. Um, and basically, reportedly, he was just kind of mean to people that worked with him. He was a little bit old school style of boss. He pretty much just had high demands. But there's been no reports so far of sexual harassment or funneling money from the company or anything like that. He was just sort of ousted because people didn't really dig him, you know, his coworkers. So that happened. Um, Tucker Carlson had received 
14,000 hours of footage from the Capitol riot. And uh, he said he's going to release it. So, yeah, the, the day of the January 6th Capitol riot. Yeah, Tucker Carlson has all the behind-the-scenes footage of everything that went down that day. So we'll see what that turns into and uh, where that goes. President Joe Biden fell up the stairs while getting on Air Force One again. Uh, he was leaving Poland. And as he was walking up, took a bit of a tumble and then caught himself and then took a bit of a tumble and then caught himself and then took a bit of a tumble and then didn't catch himself. So... So <laughs> at that point, like Joe Biden, you know, you're going to fall. Just fall. Don't even try and save yourself. Save yourself the embarrassment of almost saving yourself like six times. Just go ahead and take the L. Take the hit, man. So <laughs> that was pretty funny. Um, former President Jimmy Carter had entered hospice care. Jimmy Carter is 98 years old. He's now the longest living president in U.S. history. He had surpassed the record of George H.W. Bush who had died back in 2018 at age 94. Jimmy Carter is 98 years old, and he has entered hospice care. So, yeah. And finally, the last small bit of news that we discussed on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG, the Navy is having trouble meeting its recruiting goals. And so, in order to amend that issue, uh, the physical fitness assessment failures will now be scrubbed from sailors' records. This according to a new policy that was announced this week. Yeah, basically, uh, we're having trouble getting people in the Navy, people who are not physically fit, people who failed the physical fitness test. We're going to pretend like you didn't fail it. Uh, Actually, you didn't. And we'll let you try again as many times as as you want until eventually you squeak through. That's their solution with solving their recruiting issues. Yeah, we got some fat troopers coming in. Excited about that. So that's pretty much everything we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG. Tune in next week on FM 102.9, 105.9, AM 1310, or on your smart speaker. Additionally, you can always watch us on Facebook Live. We interact frequently with people, because on Facebook Live, you can actually leave live comments, and you can actually shape the show. You know, if you leave a comment asking about something, then we will probably start discussing live on air over the airwaves your very question. It happens uh, a lot. Pretty much every morning, somebody will bring something up in the comments and it actually shapes the nature of our conversation that morning. So we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to have you hang out with us in the morning. You can do that on our Facebook page. Tune in every morning live. We do a Facebook live. And remember, if you miss out on some stuff on the Morning News Watch, you can always catch a summary of it right here. On Plot Summary with News Talk, KZRG.